from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David. You just Strasser. arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strasser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, it's about everything. Literally. But first, make sure you help our channel out. If you're watching on YouTube, you might see that little heart sign with a little dollar sign in the middle of it. That's called a super thanks. Give the channel a super thanks if you love today's episode or you don't want to give money through big tech. No problem. We got you covered. Head right on over to our coffee shop, deadhousecoffee.com, where you can get the greatest Freshest coffee available, delivered directly to your doorstep. Plus, use the code SHARK, you'll get 20% off of your order, and we'll get all the money to keep making our magic. Now, let's get back to today's show, because I tell you what, it is a hot mess. It's one of those great interviews that really just goes all over the place, that has career transformation, to wine, to tech, to professional writing, and eventually, you know, we land on marketing. Somewhere in there, we do at least. And realistically, it's about how to reach your customer. So it's one of those fun, totally open interviews that really touches on everything that could happen in personal and professional life. So who do we have today? None other than Matthew Stiva. Matthew Stiva is a serial entrepreneur, marketing maven, writer, pilot, and wine enthusiast, but not necessarily in that order. He created marketing strategies, content, and campaigns for clients including Microsoft, Google, LinkedIn, and HP, and contributed to Wired, Forbes, and Popular Science. Currently, he is the CEO at Articulate Marketing, a UK marketing agency specializing in the technology sector. Also, his geek credentials they're strong. I'll tell you what. Previously, he was the founder and CEO at Intelligent Games, a 70-person computer games company where he designed games for Lego and produced two games based on Dude. So hey, without further delay, let's get Matthew right on in here. Reach your customer. Matthew, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became shark bait. Okay, well, I'm delighted to be here. I'm not sure I'm terribly keen on being shark bait, but we'll see how that works out. Definitely, we'll see how it works out. Believe me, we have only had survivors on this show, so we are good. <laughs> I might get away with one of my legs intact, right? Right, 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 and not get canceled in the process. So there you go. <laughs> uh, anyways, we have a tradition on this show. Very first question we ask every single person. Who are you? What do you do? How did you start doing what you're doing? Tell us your life journey. Basically, in a nutshell, what makes Matthew, Matthew? Okay, well, who am I? Um, on a molecular level, I'm mostly uh, pizza and red wine. Um, as uh, a profession, I am the CEO of a marketing agency, uh, Articulate Marketing. We help um, tech companies um, reach customers, get customers, websites, strategy, branding, that sort of thing. Um, I got into that. I've been doing that almost 20 years. Um, before that, I was a freelance journalist. And I, I, perhaps, perhaps I'll we'll come back to the story of how I totally failed to interview Sergey Brin once. Um, and before that, in my uh, 20s, I 
was the founder and 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 CEO of a computer games company. So I, I've I've done different things, but I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. In your twenties, I'm telling you right now, you don't look a day over maybe twenty nine. <laughs> well, that's extremely kind of you. I'm 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 well into my thir- uh, into my fifties. Um, but Zoom has that lovely sort of smoothing effect that makes you look younger. So I'm 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 going to do all my meetings on Zoom for that reason. There you go, the beauty filter, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got it turned up to maximum. My mother says I have a face made for radio. Oh, oh my, my mother says the same. So don't feel too bad. Uh, you got to love moms, right? So a uh, big question here is that um, you said that you're currently the CEO at Articulate Marketing. You are a UK marketing agency. Where are you out of in the UK? So I'm in London. Um but we are, and we always have been, uh, remote working. So we did it before it became fashionable. Same with us at Vision Thirty Three. It's we've mostly have been remote. You know, I, I've never worked in the office, and I've been with them for seven years. I, I, when I was running the computer games company at Intelligent Games, I had an office, and I had, you know, we had about ten thousand square feet, and all, all I remember of that was paying the rent, paying the local tax, paying for security, paying for uh, cleaning, paying for the air conditioning to be serviced. You know, it cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. So when I when I sold that business in two thousand, I went right, never having an office again. So we're, we're I'm based in London. My colleagues are all over the UK. All over the UK, we have in Wales and Scotland, uh, in 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 the north of England, and I have a couple of colleagues in mainland Europe as well. Okay, so what about customers though? Where are your customers? Are you global? Are you just UK or Europe? Uh, where are they based out of? So we have. Uh, at the high end, we have some multinational clients. Dell Technologies is a client, for example. So they're all over the place. Um, we. <laughs> Who who are they? Never heard of them. Um, historically, we've worked for all kinds of big names, Microsoft and Google and LinkedIn, Symantec. But these days, it's mostly small and mid-sized clients. Um, and most of them, probably 60% UK-based. Um, but we have clients in the US, in North America, and we have clients who have operations. We have a client who has an operation in the US and Vietnam. We have a client with operations in the in US and India. So they're, they're, they're tech companies, but they have offshore. Um, and we have some interesting clients in Europe as well. So we have a client in Prague that makes amazing software. We have a client in Budapest that do, like if you're a genius PhD research chemist, you're using their software. So we we, we have clients all over. That That's uh, great. So, I mean, there's a lot I want to dig in with you. This is going to be, I'm giving everybody a fair warning. This is going to be one of those jam-packed interviews where we cover like a hundred different topics, uh, probably mid to high level. But the, the first one I want to ask you is you just brought up that you work with a lot of LE, large enterprises, okay? But you're saying that you're doing more small business uh, to midsize, you know, working with more mom and pops. Which one do you prefer working with more? Large enterprises or the smaller businesses? So the, the history of Articulate was me initially working on my own and only for big multinationals as, as a copywriter. Um, effectively, I was a recovering ex-journalist. Um, as as the business has grown, and there are nearly twenty of us now, we we still have some multinational clients, but the the, the size of the clients has has dropped down because we're doing more for them. I mean, we're a HubSpot Diamond partner. We build websites. We do branding, marketing, strategy. So the typical client now is fifty to one hundred people. I mean, there are some bigger, some smaller. Um, I 
I think it's it's a different story. So I'm an entrepreneur. I run a small business. I can relate to and enjoy working with smaller companies because I understand some of what they're dealing with. You don't have to go with all the egos or the boardrooms as much too. The funny thing is there's more ego, more politics, if you like, with smaller companies, weirdly. When working with the multinationals, we're always talking to mar- professional marketing managers. Yeah, I guess so. With what I do, it's a little bit different than what you do. So your experience with the marketing, yeah, I can see how that could be different. And and what, that way, it's a professional to professional peer to peer conversation. They know what they want. We know how to deliver it. We're, we're talking, you know, so they give very clear briefings. They know exactly what the, you know, and they, they typically, they rock up. We've got a budget to do, you know, thought leadership content for the next three months, the next quarter. So we need 20 blog posts about something. Whereas the owner manager of a small business is like, I just want more customers. How do I get more? Help me get more customers, right? And we we have to kind of educate them a little bit about like, okay, you know, you need inbound lead capture, you need lead capture landing pages, you need top of funnel content, you need SEO, you need blah, 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 blah. in order to get the thing you want, we have to do all this other stuff. And so there's a there's a different conversation, both of which are enjoyable. But it's sometimes a little harder with owner managers, I find. Yeah, we have it. We kind of call it internally like a sophisticated customer versus an unsophisticated customer. And when we say unsophisticated, we're not saying that in a derogatory way. It just means this is a customer that needs hand holding. You're going to have to teach them because they don't know what they don't know. And, you know, they need a little bit more TLC. Then somebody that like, again, we do my main job, Vision 33, sponsor of the show. Um, but they, um, you know, we do ERP. So I think SAP, uh, Sage, they're the type of products that we implement for our customers. And when we have the sophisticated customer, somebody who's already done a implementation of this size, and this is maybe their second or their third platform that they're choosing, those are usually a lot easier than when it's their first time and they're like, hey, we have no idea what we want. We have no idea what we need. We need you guys. You guys are the experts. Tell us and teach us. And that's where it's... Also, it, oftentimes, I find that to be more fun. The bit of my job that I enjoy the most, actually, is we, we call it strategy blueprints. So working with a company to understand and sort of capture and play back who they are, who they sell to, why they're different, what's interesting, their positioning, their messaging, their tone of voice, their differentiation. And and and, and it can be with a, with a client that is, is having that, doing that for the first time, it can't. You can see that the, the revelation going on. They're going, ah, oh, okay. That I hadn't thought about it like that. And actually, I always sold to these people, but maybe I need to sell to those people. And so it, there can be a very satisfying collaborative journey on the strategy front. I think, much like you described, not always, unfortunately, but quite often. Yeah, yeah. We we do the blueprint as well too. Um, usually, that's after they've decided on us. Like we do. Kind of like a mini blueprint during the sales cycle. And that's a, we do that as a courtesy because we've got to get initial scope and figure out, okay, this is what the company... We peel back all the layers of the onion we can. But as a non-paid engagement, we can only go so far, you know, so deep into the company. And then after they're a client and they're onboarding, that's where then we do the full business process review. And we figure out every process they have from sales, the shipping, 
to, you know, production, if they're manufacturing or accounting, everything, document it. And then we figure out how do we automate that. So it sounds like you're doing that same type of thing, but on the marketing side. Yeah. And I'm interested, how do you do, how do you kind of calibrate what you will, are willing to do for free and what you're willing to do once they sign up? Size of the deal. No, um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, the way that, that we do it would be, I mean, if it's a typical, what we call net new name, that means that they would be brand new to either SAP or Sage as the client. The two parts of our game, you know, the, the dollar size and then the number of names that you bring in. And they're the big two metrics that we look at. So we go through a typical pre-sales process and we have our own solution architects. And they're the ones that are doing the, the, the deeper discovery dive during the sales process. And most companies are going to be, you know, in specific verticals, they're going to be similar. Every company is different. Okay. And usually during the, the sales cycle, we find out what's different. But I mean, we've done demos where, you know, we, we would be on site for three days demoing the software because it's that complex of a build. And if it's a real opportunity, you know, then we could be talking a million, maybe a $2 million project. We'll invest that time. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but it mostly balances out in our favor if we're given that much time investment to it. So we do have a hard line. It just, um, I don't know, it's a line that kind of moves depending on a lot of different factors. A lot of times it's it's kind of like my gut feeling, you know, because I'm I'm more I'm the general I manage the Northeast. I do I'm the GM of the the Northeast region. So when I talk with the sales reps, I'm usually the one that'll tell them, like, yeah, you know, we should definitely be on site or we should give them some more love and care during the sales cycle and some hand holding. Or sometimes I'm like, hey, you know what? I think you're being used as fodder. It's probably a good time to get out of the deal and walk away. It's it's interesting because we 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 try very hard not to do unpaid creative work, free pitching as as we call it in, in the marketing industry. And but for lots of good and sufficient reasons, but there are agencies out there who will do quite a lot. They'll almost design your website for free. And that, so you're I, we're we're over here, you're sort of in the middle. And I have a friend who runs an uh, an agency that does um like graphics for tv so intro sequences and idents and stuff like that and their business is extraordinary they will get an rfp from you know a tv channel saying we're doing the world cup and we want you to do the graphics you do the graphics we'll ask five other agencies to do the graphics whichever one we like the most will pay so they do all the work for free up front and if it gets used, they get paid, which is extraordinary. So that, that every business has this sort of strange how much you give away versus what you get. Now, with us, I th I'd say the good thing is, is that when we go in, we try to top, you know, what are your three big pain points? Okay. Um, now, if we have to do five or six, because they have five or six, we'll do five or six. But we give them basically a general overview. I mean, look, whether it's a $25,000 system that they're buying off us or it's a multi-million dollar system. Okay, they need to see the software. They need to see that it check marks their boxes or else they're not going to buy. And, you know, they're looking at three, four, or five different solutions. So that's where we kind of have to wow them with what we do. The only way we can wow them is by doing that pre discovery, that sales scoping 
of the project to figure out what the pains are. So that way, once we have that needs assessment, then we can show them the value and how they will get their ROI with our solution. And hopefully we demo it better than the competitors do. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I I think all sales processes are about poking at pain points, discovering them, and then poking until they hurt, and then going, we can fix it. And for for us, we, we do that value before commitment thing by um, we have webinars and blog posts and, and thought leadership content on our site that we give away for free. So what we, what we will often do is say to somebody, I'm not going to solve your particular website problem or your particular lead conversion rate optimization problem or whatever. But here's a webinar about how we approach that problem. And here's what it will cost to have us solve that for you. So you you know how we will do it, what we'll do, how we'll get at it, but we're not doing it for free to get the business. So, it, but it, it, every, every business is on a sort of different uh, place on that spectrum, isn't it? Right, and that's where sometimes you have to give a little to get a little. You know, you give a little bit for free, and you get a lot. Like I talk to my consultants, so these are the people that are implementing the project. Every now and then, you'll have a, a customer complain, "Hey, you build me two hours, and I don't think we should have been built those two hours because you guys were only fixing your mistakes." even though they they broke it themselves and it wasn't us but to me i you know i i tell everybody keep one eye in the present keep one eye in the future okay given back those 2 hours does it stink yeah it stinks okay but it's like you know you're talking maybe 400 bucks okay give it to them now let them know that hey as a courtesy we will give this back to you but that could be the key in building the relationship so that maybe 6 months down the road we're getting another 150-hour project from that customer. It, there's there's a there's a delicate balance, isn't there? Because some clients you teach when you do that that if they complain, they get something for free, right? Right. So they complain more, and that's what that that is a very very valid point. And we do have a hard line because we do have customers that that do it more often than not, and you know. I would say over the past year, though, year and a half, I mean, I've only been the general manager for our Northeast region for about three and a half years. When I first got it, the region really didn't exist. The projects that were going on, they were tough projects. And my goal was to do two things. Fix all the ongoing projects and get them from escalated down to happy customers. So in the beginning, there was giving away more free stuff. And then... On the um, you know, on the other hand, it was grow the region and massive growth, and I've done excellent with that, especially our industry. I mean, started off with about ten clients, and here we are, three and a half years later, and we're in our forties. So, and that's you know, to give an idea. That's uh, 40, 50, maybe up to sixty clients. That's about what the average you know partner in our industry has you know for the whole U.S. So, and we have that just in the Northeast region. So, we've done massive, massive growth. And, you know, it is that delicate balance. And you have to judge it by a case by case basis. You know, is this something that will help us out in the future? And sometimes you just get the pain in the butt clients where they, they're sucking so much time. But if you've got a pain in the, in the butt client, you've got a bigger problem than you, you're trying to keep the relationship going. And you, you know, sometimes you have to have a difficult conversation with them. And I suppose the, 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 the flip side is 
one of one of my um clients had does a really interesting graph and i'll try and describe it it's better if i can draw it but i'll try and describe it so you start off at the relationship so the graph is like how happy the client is on on the y-axis and the x-axis is time so your perception is client's pretty happy and da, 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 something happens and it goes wrong you bill them incorrectly or whatever two hours something and you think you fixed it so you'll think okay client happy and now they're a bit less happy but i fixed it so it's not that bad and they are actually really pissed off but they kind of go okay you fixed it so their happiness has dropped quite a lot so your there's a perception gap between what you think the relationship looks like and what the client thinks the relationship looks like and very often i mean with 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 well meaning clients not machiavellian clients those complaints usually are coming from something bigger. There's some mismatch in expectations or some concern about performance. And, and the second time it happens, you know, you're slightly think the relationship's a little bit worse, but they think it's a lot. And then they fire you and you go, why are we being fired? Right? Um, so that there's that 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 is so with our, our account managers, our client partners, as we call them, we we really try a lot put, to put a lot of work into you know, health checks and preemptive fire prevention, if you like, rather than firefighting. Right, right. I, be proactive uh, and not reactive. And the typical mentality in our industry used to be, you know, let's be reactive. Oh, there's a fire, you know, let's fix it. But it's about fire prevention and being proactive. So you can kind of... And that's where it goes back to what I just said a few minutes ago. Keeping one eye on the present one eye in the future because what you do today is going to impact you tomorrow and you need to know are you starting a fire or are you preventing a fire before you make that decision yeah for real so i want to get into uh, uh we've been talking about me a lot i love the questions you've asked uh, and we've discussed uh with me not a lot of uh guests come on the show and ask me questions so i'm very happy because i always encourage that but not many do so I, I thank you for that, you know, giving me some time to talk about how I personally do a lot of stuff. But I want to talk about you now. And I want to talk about, you know, you you were writing out there for Wired, Forbes. I write in Forbes right now, but also Popular Science. I mean, Wired, Popular Science, they're two huge magazines that I love. I believe I have subscriptions with them even till today. Uh, and obviously Forbes, because I'm a Forbes contributor as well, too. How did your journalistic life transform into what you're doing today? I'd like to say talent and genius, but it was mostly luck um, and maybe a, a bit of bloody-minded persistence. Um, so when I was um, finishing, when I sold the computer games company in, in the year 2000, um, I had done a little bit of writing, a little bit. And I had enjoyed it so much. I thought I, I thought I had a, a sabbatical for a year or so, and I thought, well, I'll I'll try this writing, see how I go with that. So I I I, I had lunch with an editor of a business magazine in the UK, and he gave me a column, and I was writing some features for him. And then I thought, well, who else? What other magazines do I like? Hmm, Wired. I know what. I'll I'll write to them and suggest some ideas. And and then Popular Science. I'll write to them and suggest some ideas. Coming out of the the gaming industry, I mean, you had the background to work for Wired and Popular Science, write articles for those publications. I mean, you would think if you're creating games. And I also don't want to gloss over the fact that I mean, you had your business uh, at Intelligent Games 
it was a 70 person, you know, operation and you designed games for Lego and two games on Dune. Uh, based on Dune. Yeah, the Dune games. That suddenly became very popular last year when the film came out. I did all kinds of interviews. And I did, bizarrely, because we're doing this podcast about marketing, I got I got interviewed for a Lego podcast, <laughs> from for like the official Lego podcast for one of the games I designed. And it was so funny because it, it was such a long time ago. I could hardly remember anything. Anyway, so yeah, I, I, I just, I was just pitching ideas and writing about things. It, there was a little bit, I wrote, I wrote a, an article for Wired about computer games, um, but mostly actually it was about aviation because that's been my passion and hobby. Um, so I, I, I reviewed um, various jets and things. Um, and I, I, I used to do jet reviews for the, the Rob Report, which was kind of a fun gig. Um, and that's how I got to do the Forbes thing as well. That I, I wrote a column for their website about a... Uh, 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 aviation. Wow, wow. So you totally went into aviation. So hearing you doing it for aviation, while I could believe it, I will admit that's a little bit of a surprise, given that we're here talking about marketing, that you used to have a tech company that that designed games for Dune and off of Lego and stuff like that. So hearing that you're doing aviation, that kind of... Uh, that That's a curveball right there. Yeah, but I'm a total geek. And there is there is a straight line that runs through computer games, Lego, planes, and digital marketing for tech companies. It, it, it's all the it's all the same sort of curiosity. I mean, I, you know, and the the, the the aviation thing was um, I can I could I can write. I'm, I'm I think I'm pretty good at that, and I had a pilot's license, so I could go actually go fly and and the other thing and this was probably this was the luck element to it because i'd sold the business i had time so i could spend you know weeks researching something or i could you know if i i, I mean if i wanted to go i i went to uh, switzerland to go visit the pilatus factory and I, you know most journalists would just do a phone interview and, and and whatever because it's you know it's expensive to get there. I was like that was that was a holiday for me. I didn't have to do it for the money. I think I think if you in fact if you're lucky enough not to have to do things for the money, everything becomes much more exciting. Um, my 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 dear friend um, who who is an actress, um, she said if you do what you love, the money takes care of itself. And I think there's there's something something appealing about that thought. Um, I quite care. I care quite a bit about money, so I also have to work for a living. But most people care about money. You know, when they ask me what motivates me in life, it's money. Because if I don't have money, if I'm not selling, if I'm not doing every everything falls apart. The family's not in a good spot. You know, it, it's just not fun to be broke. Isn't it? In, yes. Isn't it interesting that the the ambition for money. I think is very largely about fear of not having it, right? So it's about security and assurance and making sure that the family is provided for, not what not not being afraid, right? So that's at some point you have enough money that that isn't the issue, and 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 that was I was lucky for a year or two in my life to be in that position. It's not always been my life, but here's a here's a weird thing. I I have a, a college friend who. Um, made an astonishing amount of money. I mean, like genuinely, properly, properly, properly rich. And and I once asked him how much money he thought would be enough. And he said, I think I can retire when I've got 50 million pounds, right? And 
he's in the Sunday Times rich list. He's got more than 10 times that and he's still working. So at what point do you go? I don't, you know, at what point you go, I don't need more money. I could just go and do the things that I love or the things that I can do good in the world or I can make, what is it? And I, I'm, I'm often curious about that. It's very interesting that you just brought this up. Have you ever seen the show Billions? On, I believe it's on uh, uh, Showtime. Yeah, yeah. I watched a few of those episodes. I haven't seen all of it. I watch it from start to end and it, it's a really, really excellent show. But I finally just been watched the latest season, which is the first season in that um, uh, Axe, uh, I think it's Bobby Axelrod's its full name in the show, but it's the first season that he's not in the show and he was the main actor for the first like five seasons. Huge change, but they did an excellent job in the last season of getting the new character in Michael Prince. But one of their um, people, her, I, her name is escaping me in the show. She was talking about, and this is like one of the big brainiacs in the show, the super intelligent person. At what point can she leave the business? How much money does she have to rack up so that she has enough money to be set for life and still be able to have a global good impact? You know, whether it's Wi Fi in Africa to, you know, things like that, do passion projects and still be set for life. Number she came up with was 100 million. And I'm sure that they probably did some pretty good research into that to come up with that figure. And they kind of explained it a little bit in the show. And as I was thinking about it, if if you're just going to sit back and do nothing, 100 million probably is way too much. But if you're going to do things as far as charities or try to better off the world and do good things, with that money, that's probably where 100 million makes sense to have that level of comfort as well as being able to do investments to better off the planet. Well, or you can take the route that my actress friend did and just say, I'm going to manage down my needs, wants, and expectations to match the income I'm confident I can get. Oh, that's true too. Who's to say she's wrong? I mean, she enjoys her work. She's She makes a difference. You it's a it's a very interesting question because there are many different answers to that. I think everybody would have a different answer uh, to that specific question. What's your number? What's the number that you would stop working at? For me? Yes. I don't know if I can give you a number, but I, 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 I've got an existence proof or a test of what would happen when I stopped work. Because I, I, I sort of took a sabbatical and I when I was 30 and I... Within days, I was bored stupid and I started working again. And the reason I became a journalist, freelance journalist, was I wanted something to do with my brain. I wanted to work and I picked something that allowed me to do things that I found very interesting, like interview Sergey Brin or go test fly business jets or whatever. Bless them. People let me do that and got away with it. And because of that, I got to meet people at Microsoft. I got to meet people in the British government and I got... Uh, uh, asked to do what I did as a freelance journalist, but for companies. So I became effectively a journalist for corporations. And, and that's how the agency got started. And my first client was Microsoft. And my second client was a, a department of the British government. So, you know, again, total luck. Mm -hmm. We had uh, like, we've had legit millionaires on this show to where 
he he built up a huge business, sold it, I think, for $20 million. He was the sole owner. So he ended up getting all $20 million himself. Um, you know, and he's like, dude, there's only so many margaritas you could drink on the beach. And after I think it was like 18 months or two years, he was like, I, I've got to get back to work. Like, I am still richer than rich, but I am bored to death. Okay. I need something to do. His mistake was not getting a pilot's license because, you know, if God had meant us to fly, he'd have given us more money. Well, he ended up starting a, a brand new tech company, you know, in the same industry that he was an expert in. He basically started a tech company and, you know, he's making more millions uh, with this tech company. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. And that's a story that I've heard time and time again from people that have been legitly rich and made it. And they're like, I'm bored. You know, I need to be doing something. Entrepreneurs are entrepreneurship is it's kind of like a job or it's kind of like a vacation if it's what works for you if it what if it's what gets you up in the morning you want to start a business you want to run a business that's it and and this is why there are so many serial entrepreneurs serial entrepreneurs don't stop and become doctors or teachers they just go and start another company because it's the thing that they're good at it's the thing that they want to do so i got uh two last topics i want to talk to you about uh we're running short on time right now um we're both little chatter boxes today aren't we uh, so remote working and modern management. Okay. I want to combine those two topics into one. And then I have a, another question after this. Um, but remote working, we've already touched on that topic. People are working remotely. It was, you know, COVID really pushed everybody off the digital transformation edge and almost nearly every business was, you know, to some degree working remote or people working remote due to COVID. But how does that play in? We're going through the great resignation, people that still want and are fighting for remote working. But then you have people that are with like uh, Elon Musk and even I think Apple to some degree and other big tech companies saying like, no, you got to get back in the office. So what is the modern management style for remote working? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think the, the this great resignation has come about um, but I think it's more like a great sorting. It's the sorting between people who want to work remotely, finding companies that will let them, and people who want to work in an office or in a you know live environment, finding companies that will let them. And there's a sort of a, suddenly people are a lot more aware of the choice that they have as companies, as employees, than they were before. There was definitely a, a, a sort of slightly sniffy attitude towards companies that were remote working. Like, where's your office? Well, how, you know, I, how can I sue you if you don't have an office? Like, any idiot can get an office. You just walk into WeWork. But so, I, how do you how do you manage companies? I, I think my observation of the of the um, remote working, the in compulsory remote working that came in with the pandemic, is that good managers are good remote managers and they're good in-person managers. Companies that are well run are well run if they're working in an office or they're well run if they're working remotely. What happened, I think, was companies that were badly run and managers who were not good managers found the transition to remote working much harder and have been much more uh, greedy of getting back everyone into the office where they can do all their sort of dirty tricks of of lazy management like micromanaging and controlling people and looking at what they're doing and i'm i'm an opinionated outlier on this spectrum i do understand that there are good managers in offices but i i, I think that 
here's the thing. When you hire somebody into your team or into your business, you don't hire them because of their ability to work in a particular place or their ability to come and micromanage them. You hire them because you want them to be good at their job and you hope that you can trust them to do their job well. So if you can cope with that and let trust people and let people get on with it, I think, and then set up a management style that is about coaching and mentoring and measuring outputs and results rather than inputs and hours. And you can kind of build that kind of working relationship. I think you can you can build a very successful company, whether you whether you do it in an office or do it remotely. We have exactly the same opinion. We are hiring professionals. The people that we hire, you know, we expect it's going to be more results driven than it is nine to five. I've always been against nine to five. I've told my employees, my whole team, HR, hope you're not listening. But um, I don't care when you work, you know, as long as you're putting in your eight hours, okay, you have 24 hours, uh, period, to, to get that eight hours worth of work done because, you know, most people aren't going to like with the billable consultants, stuff like that. It's just a little bit harder to where, yeah, you've got to get your eight hours in, but you have 24 hours you can do it. There are certain things that need to be done be- between nine and five. Outside of that, you know, I don't care if it's 7 p.m. or 7 a.m. It's it's uh, yes, we're obviously against discourtesy of turning up late for meetings or whatever. But interestingly, so you, I think, run a business that is based on billable hours and timesheets and things like that. And we we abolish timesheets. We do not do them. I I cannot. And, and I actually lost a, a sales pitch with a client two weeks ago because they said, "What's your hourly rate?" I said, "I don't have one. We don't do. We don't give you a timesheet." If you, you want us to build a web, build you a website, we'll tell you how much the website's going to cost. And if that's a good value deal for you, that's what it's going to cost. I saw a Facebook video of someone pitching that style, okay? And the bit, and he was talking to a room of business owners, and he it was more of, I think, a, a sales coaching class. And he was like, no, I wouldn't pay for that. And he, he said, uh, well... Why? He's like, well, it's too expensive. You know, it, it's like, that's crazy. So the guy said, okay, well, how about this then? Okay. I'll build the website for free. Okay. But then you're giving me 50% or I think it was 50%, but it was some percent uh, off of the gross profit that's made on each product. Okay. For life while you're using that website, you know, uh, he's like, no, I wouldn't do that either. And it's like, well, why not? You don't want to pay for the website. So I, I said, I'll do it for free if you give me a commission on my work. And yet you don't want to do that either. Like that doesn't make sense. And it was teaching the value of digital skills like marketing and stuff like that. The challenge comes not so much because the website has value that it has value to a customer and that you're trying to tap into it. It's more that people think they can get the website done by somebody else cheaper. So that's the that's the price driver. Um, and quite often they want to find your hourly rate because they want to have some unit of comparison against other agencies. Um, Interestingly, though, we when we were doing a lot more work with multinationals, we would talk to the person who needed our work, like they desperately needed high quality copywriting or whatever. So they would hire us and then they would go to the purchasing department and they would say, OK, we want articulate marketing rostered. And the purchasing department would come along and they'd say, what's your hourly rate? And we go, we're not telling you we don't have one. And you know, if you want, if if your marketing manager wants to hire us, the price we get, and it was a very good tactic in those days for actually c- kind of making um, purchasing departments in big multinationals back off. Um, 
it, so there, 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 it, there are different ways of getting at this, but I, I, for actually just to complete the the story of this, and I'm, I know you've got to wrap up, but um, we we measure output in 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 points. So we have a sort of sprint agile model. So we charge per point, and therefore all our costing and pricing and internal management is measured in terms of tangible deliverables that add value to clients and not the effort required to do it. And I think it's fundamental because it aligns our interests with our clients. Can we do good quality work efficiently on time that they value that's what they pay for. That's amazing. You know, there's so many other topics I want to get into, but we're we're pressed for time. We've been uh, really talking a lot. We were talking so much pre-show too. We had a, a lot of fun today. Uh, but I would like to bring you back on to continue this conversation, you know, maybe in a couple more months as far as ethical business, like uh, being a B Corp, uh, which a lot of people aren't aware actually do exist. Um, you know, and a lot of other topics like that, and to get into some of the more granularities, like, hey, how do you get more visitors, more leads through your website? You know, lead gen versus lead demand, all those types of topics. Uh, so I'll definitely be bringing you back on. This has been a blast. Last, very, very last question: How can people digitally stalk you or your business online? Where can they find you? And where can they find a copy of your advanced wine diploma? <laughs> so um, wine first. Um, my wine blog is at vincarta.com, vincarta.com. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of wine wine stuff there. And you can download my guide to wine tasting. There's, there's no commercial interest there. That's just for love of wine. Um, my business is articulatemarketing.com. And you can contact me if you fill, seriously, if you fill in the contact form there, that comes through to me and my head of business development. So I will see any message sent there. Um, also, my personal blog is geekboss.com. Um, and there's some stuff there, but there's no contact form. Awesome stuff. I This was an amazing interview. You're definitely... I mean, you, we didn't even really get into too much of the marketing stuff, but you can just tell just but from the conversation that we have the level of experience and expertise that you and your firm has. This has been an amazing discussion. So I, you know, I'm so grateful. Um, I guess, uh, what do they do this? Six steps from Kevin Bacon. Who was that? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, yeah. Like everybody. Well, there you go. Now I'm three steps away from Sergey Bin. So it, it all works. <laughs> and we didn't even get to cover that story. I'd love to come back. It's been a great, great fun talking to you. Thank you very much for having me, David. Thank you so much, sir. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Oh, that was an incredible chat with Matthew, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked some morbid fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Piz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business, please do me a favor, share us out to your friends, your colleagues, your family, anywhere that you dwell on the interwebs, Facebook, Twitter, Minds, LinkedIn. I would love to see nothing more than Matthew Stiva and Shark Bite biz out there trending now let's get back to the real rock star of the show matthew hey like i said that was an incredible journey i mean being the founder of a video gaming company with 70 
people then writing some super detailed articles for places like Popular Science. I mean, come on. When I was a kid, I subscribed to Popular Science all the time as a teenager. I love that. That is a bucket list item of mine to be in there. And here Matthew is writing about these airplanes and aviational tech and all that crazy stuff. That was incredible. I, I loved it. I was blown away. I mean, this guy has lived so many lives. And it's because he loves to write whether it's code, whether it's an article, whether it's marketing. And that's really what led to him falling into this journey by happenstance into the marketing world and was able to leverage some of his, you know, LE, large enterprise uh, friends, companies to kind of get him going. It was a natural pivot. So thank you. Also, Matthew, I've got to mention this. You know, it's not so often that people get to, and you know, they ask me or interview me to talk about how I do my sales cycle and talk about that. It was, you know, refreshing to be interviewed on my show. So, hey, thank you for talking about that and letting me use some of your time to talk about how I do things. That's pretty amazing. And, you know, I've got to add, I really do love his take, you know, on the workplace with work from home, modern management, they both really tie together and have very, very similar views. So many people, they they've kind of view this the same way. It's not a nine to five type of thing anymore. It's how you do it. The quality of your work, hitting deadlines at this level that we're at, this professional level, this executive level, whatever it is. Okay. We're all professionals. So let's treat each other that way. Somebody, if they're not working, guess what? Especially if you're in a small business, you're going to figure it out pretty quickly. So having the flexibility of working and being more task or job orientated is so important these days. So anyways, again, awesome stuff, Matthew. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your personal journey and your current mission of helping small businesses compete and grow via marketing. I mean, that is awesome. That's what this show is all here about. Please check out his business, Articulate Marketing. Question of the day. How do you think marketing has evolved during COVID? Leave me a comment down below on YouTube. Do you want to be on the show? We uh, Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. We are starting our very own live stream. It debuts September 21st, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Odetta Pine, David Strausser, Shark Bite Biz Live. Okay, if you're watching on YouTube, join the channel. $3 a month, you can become a baby shark or head right on over to deadhousecoffee.com where you can get the freshest coffee known on earth delivered directly to your doorstep. Use code SHARK, save 20%. We'll get the proceeds to help us. You all know this by now, but I'll say it again. I'm David Strausser. This is Shark Bite Biz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 